today back to where I left off last week, and that's in Hebrews 11. You may recall I started uh, into the book of James, but very quickly in establishing the theme that James had there of hope and, and uh, well, actually more faith and belief in God, uh, it, it was an easy transition to go to Hebrews 11 in showing that uh, we have to have confidence in God and not draw back as it shows at the end of chapter 10. And then we uh, went through with some time on Hebrews 11 and quit with verse 2, but reviewing that faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the undergirding, uh, the important part of things we hope for. It is a belief and a trust in God that those things will happen. The evidence of things not seen. So it is a belief based upon God and who He is and what He says without any evidence that that will happen. Now, the church has been looking for many, many years at prophecy and trying to figure out what's going to happen, and especially, I guess, when it will happen. And we've had false calls for a long time. But those things are essentially without evidence. Uh, we have seen that they're going to happen very suddenly, many of them. God predicts that they're coming. Uh, and even His return, Christ spoke of, in saying that uh, we should watch the leaves on the trees. You know, in the springtime, you, you wonder if it's spring, so you start watching for leaves on the trees. So we're to look at events and know that it is near when we see a lot of events happening, but we still don't have much evidence. He hasn't returned and we haven't seen him and all those things. It is a matter of believing what he says. And he says that this belief without evidence, essentially, was what the elders obtained a good report through. A good report from whom? From God. Because when he told them something, they simply believed it and then tailored their lives and the management of their lives based upon what he had said. And they have a good report. And Paul is going to give part of that good report here before this chapter is over. So picking it up in verse 3 then, Through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, Christ, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. There was a time when this earth did not exist. But the fact that it is here and came out of nothing, Hebrew bara, nothing, into something, we have to believe that there was an architect, a planner, a designer, and then someone who actually caused it to come to pass. And he tells us in Romans 1, verse 20, that we are to see him through his creation. And that is one of the reasons it's important for us not to go through life with our head down just doing the things that are before us, but we need to take time 
to look at the things that God has made, to observe them, to appreciate them, and in them see God. I know it can be difficult, let's say, to picture God. Because we don't have a likeness, we know we are made in His likeness. He tells us that. But Christ said that He appears as a sun in its full glory. So, how do you get a fix on really what He looks like? Various religions have tried to draw pictures of Him, that that's the God they worship. But he says we see him through the creation. I think I've remarked before that sometimes I think about sitting on a throne and ruling, whatever that means, and I don't necessarily like office work, and I don't like to sit in the house. I like the out-of-doors more, and I like the mountains, and I like the sea, and I like a lot of things that God has made. So when I think about living forever and ever, sometimes I think... Could that be boring? Could that be frustrating? What does that mean? How do you define that? And what will you be doing on this throne as a king or a priest? But what brings me down to earth, and earth literally in that sense, is I begin to think about the God who made trees and deer and flowers and rivers and ponds and lakes and fish and all the things that we have that are so pleasant, a seashore with the waves crashing in the sand, And when I think of those things, I think, that's the kind of being I would like to be around. Someone who could make all these things that I enjoy more than anything else on earth, really, the things he has made. And people are part of that, that he has made. People aren't always pleasant as pine trees, but uh, still in all, uh, they're wonderful. And God made them to be that way. And people are what influence us and that we're most concerned with because we're all alike. We're all human in that sense. So it is looking at the things that we see in the framework of the world that helps us understand and see God. And that's why it's nice to go to those parts of nature that you like and be able to think about these things, how they got here. And how wonderful a God is who could create such things and then create us to enjoy them as much as we do. So, a lot of our belief in God has to come through appreciating what He has done. And then when we see what He has done, we read His Word upon what He will do, and that gives us a a basis for belief in the promises and the Word of God. That is rock solid, to use an expression. Well, the rocks are part of the earth, and rocks can be a very beautiful part of the earth. Then he begins to give us some examples. And I I think it is important that maybe we go through this, because, as I said last week, Christ himself said, will he find faith? when he comes to the earth. It is a very precious commodity here in the end and something we need to think about very deeply. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, 
God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead still speaks, or is still spoken of, or his example speaks to us uh, through history, through the Bible account. Isn't it interesting that the one who brought the righteous sacrifice that God approved died young at the hand of his brother who did not bring a proper sacrifice. God said it had to be a blood sacrifice. And yet Cain offered his vegetables or fruit or whatever produce he had and he thought it was just as good as Abel's lambs or goats. But it wasn't according to God's direction. The evil one lived, and the righteous one died. And yet, in the first resurrection, Abel is going to show up, and I highly doubt that Cain will. Now, I don't know what Cain's ultimate judgment is. Only God knows how much he knew and how much he despised whether he'll be in the second resurrection and have a chance at spiritual salvation as opposed to physical blessing on earth, I do not know. God's judgment is on that. We know from Hebrews 11 that Abel is going to be in the first resurrection. So, just because you're righteous doesn't necessarily mean you're going to live a long time. By what Abel did in the life he had lived to that point... God decided he would be in the first resurrection, and he did not intervene. He allowed Cain to kill a righteous man. Happened. But Abel, having obeyed, is written in the Bible for us, that we might look at his example and see that if we do what's right, we might die early in this life, and yet our reward is there. By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Now here he uses an example that is just the opposite of Abel. Genesis, without turning back there, says that the all the days of Enoch were 360 years, I think it was, something like that. So if that were all his days, he eventually died. But he was facing death. He was in a very violent world before the flood. And someone obviously had Enoch's demise in mind. They wanted to kill him. And God saw that it was going to happen if Enoch stayed where he was, so he moved him to a different place. Apparently picked him up, flew him somewhere else, and set him down where he lived the rest of his 360 or so years, or the rest of his life until he died at that age. So God does different things in different ways. Both of these are pre-flood examples one died young in righteousness, and one God delivered so that he wouldn't die. And he had this testimony that he pleased God. The way he carried on his life, 
the faith that he showed. And God did deliver him. So, we might make a different judgment. We might say, well, this person must have been wicked because he died. Or this person lived longer, so he must be righteous. Not necessarily. Or this person was preserved to long life, and this one was not. So this one must be righteous. No, God does it both ways, depending on the circumstances and what he has in mind and what his plan is. So how long we live on this earth is his purview. That's his job to determine that, especially with people who claim and try to obey him and serve him. Time and chance happens to everyone else, but I do not believe it happens to us. If God causes us to die, he had that in mind, or allows us to, or allows us to be murdered, or whatever. We'll see more examples of that as we go along here. But the point is made, getting back on the track here in verse 6, but without faith it is impossible to please him. You cannot, under any circumstances, in any way, please God without having faith. We have to believe Him. We have to trust Him. We have to trust His Word, that it is true. And if we fall short of that and do not believe it, that shows a lack of faith, and He can't be pleased won't be pleased until we come to believe him that he is, that his word is true, and that he will follow through on it, and that he will bless us ultimately for that belief and trust. And it says that here at the end of this verse. For he that comes to God must believe that he is that he truly, really exists as a being in the universe. He's not a phantom. He's not a ghost. He's not a figment of the imagination. He is a truly alive being. And not only does he truly exist, but he is a rewarder of them. Uh, here, I lost it that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. He is going to reward those who believe he is and who diligently seek him. Now, we've read that in all the prophecies, haven't we? They're brought forward here by Paul in the New Testament. That he says if we seek him diligently, as we would seek silver and gold, as Christ himself said, but in the prophecies with our whole heart, and various other expressions that are tantamount to that, he will reward us. So it's a matter of belief, and then following through with those beliefs, as James says, and we'll see more when we get back there. Diligently seeking him is part of it. Believe it is there, believe it will happen, and then diligently find him. It requires... Work on our part. God, in that sense, is elusive. He's hard to find. He spurns sinners. He hears not sinners. 
And therefore, we have to work at not being sinners. We have to work at seeking Him diligently and living His way. Now, we all fall short of that, certainly. And that's why we need Passover, and that's why we need daily prayer, because we all will fall short. So let's not be discouraged by that. Paul, who wrote this, said that the things he wanted to do he didn't do, and the things he didn't want to do he wound up doing. So he had a struggle going on internally all the time. Life wasn't easy for Paul. Obeying God was not easy for Paul. And all the things he went through were not easy either. But we must believe that eternal life is ahead. We must grasp and understand that and work toward that to please God. Verse 7, By faith Noah, being warned of God of things not seen as yet. So, Noah showed faith, and this goes back to the definition in verse 1. He didn't see anything that indicated he'd need a boat. He apparently built it on high and dry land with no water around to float it. And it took him a hundred years to do it. Now, we think having to wait a year or two or five or ten or fifteen or twenty is a long time. But it didn't frown up in rain any more than normal all that hundred long years. And yet, Noah went out day after day, probably every day but the Sabbath. Six days shall you work. But the Sabbath is the day of rest. I suspect he worked on that boat six days a week for 100 years. With only occasional rain. That is pretty strong belief. Doesn't say that there were hints from God. Doesn't say that God talked to him every week and gave him a pep talk. Just says he said, all right, I'll build a boat. And he moved with fear. He believed God when God said it's going to rain and people will be drowned. And that scared Noah into building this boat. Now, if God told us that, if it didn't happen in a week or two, we might be upset or a year or five or whatever. But he prepared a boat to the saving of his house, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is by faith. He believed God and he did not waver through that hundred year period. He just kept working, kept working. Even as we had the sermon recently about Joseph who sat in prison and God didn't bother to tell him when he would get out or what the circumstances were. He simply sat there and believed God would deliver him because he trusted in God. We'll get to him in a bit. So Noah condemned the whole world. You know what? God has put us in the same position. We are here to be a light to the world and condemn the world in much the same fashion that Noah did. 
And I think that's one of the reasons that there in Isaiah 54, I think it is, God said that this was as Noah to him. That his word about the end time is compared to that of Noah. He could have compared it to his word to others, but I think Noah was used because God is preparing a place for his people to come for safety or refuge like Noah and his family went on the boat. Now, our family is spiritual Israel. And God has said he is preparing a place, not a physical boat to float in water because he said he wouldn't do that anymore. But it's a different kind of trouble that's coming. And without God's protection, we would have no protection and we would die. So isn't it about the same? That God has told us if we'll stay on his spiritual boat, we'll be protected. And Christ even used boats and wind and waves and so on in his ministry with Peter and others at various times uh, in a type of Noah. So God is going to float us through this, to use that analogy. None of us have waited a hundred years yet for God to float our boat. We came here and... We thought things would happen faster than they have. But God's timing is what's important. And it wasn't quite time yet for the world to come apart and all these end-time prophecies to occur. There had to be preparation ahead. And as we'll see with these people in Hebrews 11, there also had to be trials and testing to see who is faithful and who is not. God has always done that, and he has put people through all kinds of horrible things to see what they would do. The next fellow on the list here went through some of that. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And we're going to see ourselves in these examples. We are to be saved out of this world when most of the population of the earth is going to be destroyed, as in Noah's day. Only a small amount of God's family will actually survive, plus some people who, to populate the millennium. But over 90% of the people on earth are going to die in the next few years. That's very clear in Scripture. We can be saved out of it as Noah was. And like Abraham... God told us to flee Babylon, to get out of it, to go out into the wilderness where he would protect us. And we came, most of us, not knowing where we were going or what it was all about. But we saw those scriptures and responded to them. So here we are. But I don't think we're going to have to wait a hundred years. We've waited a few about 10% of that since we actually moved here. Or 12, 12 years, just a little over 10%, 12% if you will. But he didn't know where he was going. God just said, go find a place. And most people would say, well, what do you mean? Show me where the place is. What am I supposed to do? Just go. Go find a place. Says he didn't know where he went. Now, he may have known 
generally through Shem or others where the promised land lay to one degree or another. But I think the continents had been divided between the time Shem was saved on the ark and Abraham was told to go. Because it says in the days of Peleg, that is before Abraham, the earth was divided. I don't think it's speaking racially or people-wise because that was done at Babel. So in the days of Peleg, apparently the physical earth was divided. So that would have made it more difficult to know where you were going. And the land may have changed a lot as the continents separated and mountains were made that were not there previously, perhaps. So he went, not knowing, on faith, with no evidence again, see. I don't know where I'm going. I'm just going. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country. When he finally found the place God intended him to go, he didn't know what it was. It was strange to him. Strange people to him were living there. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. They were promised the same land that he was as they lived generation to generation. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Now we've been called upon to do this on two levels. We came here not knowing everything about this area. You certainly didn't. I didn't. I've learned much since I've been here. We came to recognize more and more that this is the original promised land. We came to see Jerusalem here. If Zion is here, it has to be, <coughs> which we didn't know before. So we looked for a city whose foundations were from God. And there are 12 geological structures underneath where I think Jerusalem is. So it is a foundation whose builder and maker is God. So we are called to come and build a temple and build Jerusalem from scratch in Daniel 9. Has to happen. But we are also called to a city which is coming down from God in heaven when Christ, well, not when he returns, but probably a year later. When he comes down uh, with the church, 144,000, and the new Jerusalem comes down. So, we're looking for two cities, one physical and one spiritual. So, we're in the same position Abraham was, on two counts, not just one. Of course, Abraham looked for the kingdom of God as well. So he had both a physical city to find and the spiritual city. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age. Menopause was long over and she had no possibility of having a child even though it had been promised. But she and Abraham believed. Now when they first heard it, 
there was laughter. Perhaps a certain disbelief or time required to truly believe. And God chided her somewhat because of her attitude initially. But she got past that and she believed it. And then it happened. It says here she believed it. Because she judged him faithful who had promised. So her initial reaction may not have been exactly what God wanted. But she adjusted her thinking and she truly believed it. I think any woman who was 5, 10, 15, 20 years, 30, 40 years past menopause would do a double take if God appeared and said, you're going to have a baby. That would be a little hard to believe. Just really would. Oh, God had mercy on her, and he allowed her to adjust her thinking, and she did, and she believed him. No evidence again. No evidence whatever. Did she start her cycles all over again? I doubt it. Not only that, but he was past that happening as well. Verse 12, Therefore sprang there even of one, and him as good as dead. So, in terms of him being able to generate children at that point, he was as good as dead. No way for either one of them to fulfill that on any physical level whatsoever. But God promised it, and they believed it with absolutely no evidence. If God said it, it will happen. There's the attitude that we need to come to have as uniformly and as uh, consecutively or abidingly as we possibly can come to see. Without time for doubt, without time for discouragement, without doubt. Just believe God. Now, did he make these people wait? Did he try them and test them. He told Abraham and Sarah, this will happen. And then they had to wait and wait. And then one day, everybody woke up and it happened. Incredible. I think their story is one of the very best and explains why God counted him as the father of the faithful. Because not only did they go through that, they went through more. Therefore sprang even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Just millions and millions and millions of people that have come from Abraham since that time. Not just the millions, hundreds of millions who are alive today, but all those throughout history who've lived and died. Maybe billions by now came from Abraham. Go down to the seashore and start stacking sand particles and see how long it takes you to make a billion. That's pretty much innumerable, isn't it? You couldn't do it in a lifetime. These all died. They died. Believing. 
in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off, were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Wow. God had made all those promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And they simply believed it. And they lived out their lives and died not having received many of the promises that God said they would have. And they're still laying in their graves, not having received them as yet. We are still here alive and haven't received them as yet. But they realized that they were strangers and pilgrims, that there was another world to come, another place to be, another life to live, that it would happen. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. So here we are. We're varying ages, varying amounts of understanding, various backgrounds, but we have something in common. We believe Christ is coming and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So we believe that we'll be resurrected if we do our part. And we struggle daily to do that part, just as these people struggled. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from where they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. In other words, they put out of their mind where they had come from and continued to seek where they were going to. Put out of their mind where they came from. They were not mindful of it. Otherwise, they might have gone back. But they knew they were not to go back. They knew what God had said, and therefore, that was what was on their mind. And we have the same challenge before us. God told us to do some things. We've been over many of those scriptures. And we're not to look back, even as Lot's wife looked back. And not be mindful of what we have left behind, but be mindful of what is ahead. That is what God calls upon us to do and requires of us. God does not take pleasure in those who shrink back. And we have examples of many people here who were given certain things to do, and they didn't shrink back, and they didn't think about where they came from and wanting, wanting or pining away to go back. Otherwise, they might have done it. But they put the past out of their mind and moved forward. And that's what God wants you and me to do. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country a city, a place, a millennium, a kingdom of God to come. Verse 16, But now they desire a better country, that is, an heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And that's described in Revelation 21 that will come down from heaven. 
He's prepared that for us, didn't Christ say? In my Father's house are many mansions, and if I go away, I'll come back, and I'll bring these to you. And Revelation 21 shows it in its glory. Well, these people were looking forward, not backward, not at the waves as Peter did, but looking forward, not looking backward. Because they're looking for that city that God has prepared. Now, Abraham and Isaac, I mean, Abraham and Sarah went through a great deal in order to have Isaac. He had already gone through a great deal in leaving his father's house and going seeking a place where God wanted him to be that he knew not. And now he comes on a huge hurdle to further test his faith. Now, wouldn't you think that leaving home, leaving all his kin, and heading out not knowing where his, he was going, and then having his wife be barren all those years, and yet God had promised that Isaac would come through her. And then a final promise, a year from now, this will happen. Isn't that enough testing? What about them watching Isaac after that incredible miracle birth, grow up, become a man, and you know God has said through him will the promises come, and that through Isaac you'll become as the sand of the sea. And then God lays another one on him. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, tested, Offered up Isaac, and he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. God had made promises to Abraham. Indeed, Abraham found the city, the promised land. Isaac was born after all that waiting and trusting. And then when he grew up, God said, go kill him. Are you ready for that one? What if God told you to take one of your children and make a sacrifice of them? That would be tough. Do you realize that actually happened? Of whom it was said that an Isaac shall your seed be called. Well, I already quoted that before we got to it, but he had promised it would come through Isaac, and then God said, go kill Isaac. And he believed God. He had had the earlier promise, so he said, all right, I believe you. Accounting that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead. So Abraham's mindset was if God raised me from the dead and raised Sarah from the dead and he was born and God tells me to kill him and I kill him, then God must bring him back from the dead as well. Well, he believed it. So he said, okay. As it says in Genesis, he saddled his ass and took off to kill Isaac and had him tied down in the wood on the sacrifice and raised the knife. I guess to slit his throat like you would any sacrifice. And God stopped it. 
But what did God say? Now I know. Three huge tests in Abraham's life. Realize also Abraham had problems. Abraham lied about his wife Sarah at least twice, saying she was his sister, which was a half-truth. She was his half-sister. But he was denying that she was his wife by so saying. And that got him in trouble with Abimelech and others. So Abraham was not perfect by any means. And yet on the other hand, God saw in Abraham things that he could use. And boy, did he ever test him. But when it was done, after the ultimate sacrifice was to be made with Isaac, God said, now I know, Abraham, there's no doubt. I will make you the father of the faithful. So even though he had given Abraham promises, he still had to see what Abraham's production would be, what his fruits would be over time. Just as we are given promises by God about eternal life, immortality, ruling as kings and priests in the world tomorrow, and yet God has to test us through a lifetime to see if we will remain faithful or we'll turn back to other things. Will we shrink back or move forward in faith to the salvation of the soul? He has to know with each and every one of us. And it gets difficult at times. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 5.10. I want to go back there and just touch on that. 1 Peter 5.10 But the God of all grace, who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, established, strength, and settle you. So that implies that we are imperfect or immature, that we are not fully established, that we don't have much strength, and we can also be unsettled or unstable. But God has made these promises, and He's going to let us suffer a while. <laughs> Why should we be any different? than these people of old who had to be tried and tested over and over and over again, even with the threat of death and death by many. Even the most righteous, ones that God had in mind to be in His kingdom the most, many of them had to be martyred. Actually, not just face the possibility but have it actually happen. You know, Americans generally for the last generation, generation and a half, have had a pretty beautiful paved road. We've lived in a prosperous country. We've lived in a country double blessed by God, Ephraim, where the vine runs over the wall. We've had the greatest blessings of any nation on earth, beginning soon after World War II. I mean, it was, it was a, a land of great blessing from the time it was first settled or resettled when the pilgrims came over. But we have had unprecedented wealth. 
and stability and freedom from war on at least our own soil for this whole time, except the Civil War squabble among ourselves. Well, the Japanese did get into the Aleutians just a little bit up in Alaska, but it didn't amount to anything. But by and large, Americans have been free from all those things that have ravaged many countries, and many countries America herself has ravaged. So we've had it pretty easy compared to the rest of the world. Paved road all the way. And then when we hit a few potholes, it upsets us terribly because we're not used to potholes. When we have difficulties, when we have sins, when we have lack of blessing, when we have all kinds of personal trials and troubles. You know, there's nothing come upon you and me that hasn't come upon the rest of the world. We have a world that is sick and dying today of pollution, of chemicals, people dying of cancer, heart disease, diabetes continually. Third world countries where people are literally starving to death. I read just this morning that 28% of high school girls in South Africa have HIV or AIDS. 28% of high school girls. I don't know, didn't give a statistic on the boys. We have lived almost in the wonderful land of Oz, <laughs> if you will. Not that I'm trying to compare our nation to the Wizard of Oz and all that stuff, but we've had a, a gold brick road compared to the rest of the world. But boy, we get a few potholes in that, and suddenly we're confused, we're upset, we're frustrated, we lose focus. Well, where are those blessings from God? Well, they're still there. They haven't gone away. The promises are still there. All these things are going to happen. But like Abraham, like Noah, like Sarah, we simply have to wait and hope and produce. We're no different. Are any of us of the stature of Noah or Enoch or Abraham or Sarah? Not by any means. So why shouldn't we have to be tried and tested to see if we too will be faithful and have faith and believe God? That's a natural. That's a no-brainer. And yet, it is so easy for us to get involved emotionally and spiritually with some problems we might be having and become overwrought to the point we begin to lose our spiritual focus and what we're here for and look at the trial and the waves instead of to Christ. It's so easy for that to happen. The church has had a great falling away in the last quarter century. And we are no different in this group than the rest of the church, and we've been facing some of that recently. Does that shake us? Does that confuse us? Does it make us doubt? Or have we read all these promises in the Bible, and we believe them, and we believe God, and we believe that if we remain faithful to Him, everything is going to work out just fine, thank you. 
Won't it be nice to ask Abraham and Sarah in the kingdom, how did things work out? What did you go through all those years? And what torment did you go through when God said, all right, go kill him? I don't think it shook Abraham. He just figured, well, it took miracles for him to be here. I guess it's going to take a miracle for him to fulfill those promises. So he just saddled up and went to do it. Boy, there is a level of belief that is beyond us. We have to be tested and tried to one degree or another too, brethren. And some of these things are very emotionally difficult to deal with. We can lose sleep. We can pray. But I'll tell you what. When trouble is there, it makes us get on our knees and it makes us pray more fervently. It makes us seek God. And that is the whole point. To seek Him and to believe Him. So, accounting that God was able to raise Isaac up, even from the dead, from where also he received him in a figure, or a, an analogy, even as Christ was sent by his Father to die, and literally did die. Isaac was only a type, and he didn't die, then at least, but Christ did. So Abraham and Isaac became a type of the father and the son, and it became a prophecy of what would occur. That's, that's quite spectacular if you think about it, that those people, they were people like us, were used as a type of a heavenly father and his son, Jesus or Emmanuel the Christ. Wow. Wow. And today, Isaiah 43 tells us, we are his witnesses that he is God. His end-time church, the latter temple, as it comes together, will become his witnesses that he is God. That's quite a calling, too, if you stop and think about it. Isn't that spectacular that only a few thousand people in the end time are the witness before the entire world that God is God. That's just as spectacular if you stop to think about it. How can we, the called, i.e. the weak and base, can be used by God to prove who He is? And that's the whole point. He can take people who do not have much strength, much character, many morals, much ability, much brains, and convert them into people who believe him and who will follow him regardless. And he can use them to show all the smart and the intelligent and the people who have willpower and character who God is. We have an incredibly high calling. And it is not a back seat at all to what these people we're reading about did. Let's realize that. This isn't just 
something where we look back and say, yeah, but those were great people. How do you know they were great people? They simply believed God. And they did what God said, and that's what made them great. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the type of people he is calling today are the same type of people he called back then. He didn't call paragons of virtue. He called regular average people. Look at the prophets. One of them was just a keeper of almonds. Almond picker. Look at the disciples. Fishermen. Tax collectors. Just average, run-of-the-mill Joes. Some of them even in despised jobs. Nobody likes tax collectors. Scum of the earth. <laughs> but that's the one God called to be apostles. God is always the same. He called the same kind of people then that he is calling now, or has called. And from those, he is choosing. Those who will believe him, who won't shrink back, who read these promises and know they will happen and live their lives accordingly. It's easy for us to be discouraged and look back and say, yeah, but that was Abraham. Now, what did it take for Abraham to become Abraham? That's the point. What did it take for those normal human beings to become pillars in the kingdom of God? It took a lot of trial, trouble, tribulation, problems in their lives. Job was as righteous as anyone ever was. He's mentioned along with Daniel, John the Baptist. But look what he went through. You talk about potholes in a paved road. He was a wealthy man, had wonderful children, had a wife, had, he was a rich man. Had everything you could possibly want as a human being. And just suddenly, everything was taken away and he was sitting on boils. There was no way in any position he could get comfortable. Any way he sat was excruciating. We might get a little lumbago or sciatica or, uh, you know, a vertebrae out of place a little bit. And, oh, we suffer terribly. He couldn't sit down, couldn't lay down, couldn't stand up. Had boils from one end to the other. Have you ever had a boil? I've seen them on people. Oh, that's an awful looking thing. Had everything taken away. Uh, we have a little bit taken away or suffer a blip or what we consider persecution. Now, we, we haven't been persecuted, brethren. We got planning and zoning that doesn't like us and doesn't want us here, but that's not persecution. Not on the level that we're reading about here in Hebrews 11. That's just, it's a small thing. It's a little pothole in a road, is all it is. 
And we've survived now about eight years of it without them being able to run us off, without having to break God's rules. We're still here keeping the Sabbath and the holy days and doing the things God tells us to do in spite of them. And we'll be here as long as God wants us here. And they can't do a thing about it. I believe that. I think you believe that. Because God has that power, and His will will be done. And He said at some point, if we do what we're supposed to, He is going to be a wall of fire and a defense around us, and they can't touch us. Meantime, we move toward that. Verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Isaac took Jacob and Esau. Yeah, there was chicanery, there was lying, there was stealing, if you will, fraud perpetrated by Rachel and Jacob. And yet God had chosen Jacob to be the man through whom Israel would come. Renamed him Israel. In spite of his weaknesses, in spite of his faults, in spite of being uh, perhaps influenced too greatly by his mother, who was going to work this thing out for Jacob because she loved Jacob more. So there was a great deal of skullduggery there and disobedience to the laws of God. And yet God, for whatever reasons had chosen Jacob ahead of Esau, and that's the way it was going to be. I submit that it would have happened regardless had Rachel and Jacob obeyed God and not lied, cheated, stolen, and defrauded. God would have still worked it out. But they chose to sin, and God worked it out anyway because of His promise to Abraham and what He had in mind. So when Isaac went to give the blessing, he himself believed God that they would have the promised land in the end time, and he was even able to tell Jacob what the blessings that they would have thousands of years later would be. That took confidence and faith. God had imparted through Abraham, and perhaps in other ways to Isaac, I don't know all the ins and outs, what would be in the latter days. And Isaac, just before dying, was able to impart that to those boys. Jacob has had the blessings that Isaac pronounced right here in the end time, and we're living in Ephraim to prove it. And Esau is among the central bankers, and the conspirators of this world to take over, and they are planning, plotting, and initiating, and accomplishing the destruction of Jacob today, this very day, just as God said it would happen. And they are going to oversee the destruction of this country, and they're going to gloat about it, and then God is going to punish them for having done it. But it's in process of happening. Isaac knew that and told Jacob and Esau the way it would be. Esau was frustrated, but that's the way it is. 
By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning upon the top of his staff. So he blessed Ephraim and Manasseh, and those things that he promised Ephraim and Manasseh have come to pass today. And now we read of how Ephraim is going to be destroyed and all Israel taken into captivity thousands of years later. And you know what? I believe it. It's going to happen. God says so. All those blessings that came to us will be removed because of disobedience and the cursings are coming. It even says in Deuteronomy, and I know at least three places, that all these things will befall us in the latter days. They're latter day prophecies. You know what? We really have a lot of evidence, don't we, to base faith on. If you stop to think about it, we see that the things that were promised have happened over and over and over again throughout the history of mankind, as foretold in the Bible. So we have this record of people who were like us, who lied, stole, defrauded, cheated, killed, who will be in the kingdom of God. David killed. Others did. Moses did. But they're going to be very high in the kingdom of God. Because they repented, they moved on, they served God. And now we have a record that they'll be in the first resurrection, right here in Hebrews 11, in spite of themselves. Verse 22, by faith Joseph, when he died, made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Now, Joseph died early in Mitzrayim. And over 400 years after they got there, they finally departed. But Joseph believed God, and he knew there would come a time when Israel would be released and leave there, so he left instructions regarding what should be done with him when they left. Haul me out of here. Bury me in the promised land. And it happened. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child and they were not afraid of the king's commandment. There's an example for us. We serve God ahead of man. And there may come a time when man makes demands of us that are truly ungodly. And we have to stand as Moses' parents did. We're not going to worry about the king now. If the, or Pharaoh. If Pharaoh had discovered and known that they were hiding that boy child, not only would he have killed Moses, he would have killed the parents for not following through with his directives. But they said, no, this is a proper child. Maybe God has a purpose for this child. I don't know exactly how they thought about it. So they hid him at peril of death. Incredible how that worked out, isn't it? 
The Pharaoh's daughter came down, saw it, saved him, raised him in the court as her own child. Who'd have thunk it? <laughs> Who'd have believed that something like that would happen to a, a child floating in the reeds in a little ark, if you will? By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Even as we have been called to come and serve God, rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin in this world for a while. Now there's an acknowledgement here that sin can be fun. All kinds of sin can be fun. And the world revels in those things. They don't realize that there are prices to pay, ultimately. But they go on and on with whatever they do and figure that they will escape the penalties. They won't get HIV. That's somebody else. They won't die from driving too fast and recklessly. That's somebody else. You know, all the things that can happen out there, they don't think will happen to them. But a lot of times it does. But it's a choice, you see, to do what God wants done rather than enjoying the things that the world has out there that ultimately are going to come around and bite us. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, hmm, Christ was there in the Old Testament, wasn't he? Here was a man who believed in Christ, or Melchizedek. He was the God of the Old Testament. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Can you imagine the things that were said about Moses? who had grown up in Pharaoh's court and was, in that sense, a prince. And he just turned, repudiated all that, killed an Egyptian, and left. There was an awful lot of stuff said about Moses when he left. Traitor, betrayer, liar, on and on and on it went about what he had done. And even his killing of the Egyptian came to be known. I mean, the very next day, someone accosted him with that. So he's a murderer too. He was a man of great reproach in the Mitzrayim society when he turned his back on what he had been given. But he esteemed what God told him more important. And he had all the riches and the treasures of Egypt at his behest. Turned his back on fame and on fortune to go and obey God. Why do we balk when Christ says, Leave father, mother, brother, sister, house, whatever, and come and serve me? Most people balk at those things. They're not willing to do those things. Only a very few are willing to do what Christ said. When and where, he said. And he was making prophecies when he wrote those things because the end time prophets tell us to do just that. What he instructed must be done 
or the willingness to do. And that one caught up with us. We began to read in the end time prophecies that he says, Get out of Babylon, go dwell in the wilderness. Leave whatever you have, homes, some cases mates, children, whatever. Don't look back. Didn't we read an example where it said that if they had thought about those things, they might have turned around and gone back. But they didn't because they were looking forward, not backward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. In other words, no evidence. He couldn't see God. He could see Pharaoh. He could see spears and shields and chariots. But he saw God in his mind. And that's what he chose. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. That took quite a bit of belief, you know. If you'll just smear some blood over your doorpost, your firstborn won't die, but everybody else's will. Okay, I believe that. Let's do that. That might have sounded strange to people, you know. What if somebody in the church, a church, part of the church of God, without you never knowing history, came and told you, living in suburban Chicago or somewhere, that you needed to kill a lamb or a goat, a lamb in this case, and spread its blood over your doorposts or somebody in your house is going to die tonight. Did you hear that kook at the door? Did you hear what that was? What that guy said? Go buy a lamb. Let's, let's kill it and spread blood on the doorpost. Yeah, right. Wonder when they're going to lock him up. No. Believed it. Anyway, verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians, saying to do, were drowned. You know, that would require a certain amount of belief and faith in God if you saw the wind and the waves parted and then you were directed to walk through there with high walls of water on both sides. The timorous ones need not apply. (laughs) The ones easily shaken need not apply. We have to believe God. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. Just march around the city, then yell, and the wall will fall, and the city is yours. Tell the U.S. Army that one. March around Tehran, Iran, and after seven days, the city will collapse. A lot of people would believe that. By faith, the harlot Rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace. They were representatives of God. She recognized on some level that that was true, that those had to be the people of God out there because hadn't the Jordan River backed up? Hadn't they walked across? Those rumors had reached Jericho. 
So she believed that they were people of God. And she risked her very life to save those spies. Now she was just a common prostitute. Known in the city as that. And she's going to be in the kingdom of God. Because of belief in God's people and ultimately in God. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter our history. It doesn't matter anything except we truly believe God and serve Him. That's all that matters. Some people think that Rahab was in the worst profession, was one of the worst sinners that had ever lived, because in people's mind, sexual sins are worse than other kinds of sins. Now, they may have more lasting effect on humans and their emotions, but as far as death and eternal life, they're no different than any other sin. So God saved one such as her and put her in the record of the faithful throughout the universe, throughout the history of man. And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of these others, and it's failing me too. Uh, need to wrap this up, but I think I'll finish it quickly like Paul did. What shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. God kept sending people away. There were only 300 left. You expect me to go fight those tens of thousands of people with 300? You betcha, Gideon. Go for it. In fact, don't even take a sword. Just take some lamps. Ooh. You want to face a Russian army that way? <laughs> Just a few of you? There's only going to be a few of us. The odds are going to be even greater. Seven, eight, ten, twelve thousand. How many ever it turns out to be? Against billions? You believe it? That's what the book says. Small remnant of those called here in the end will face down the whole world. I mean, he was in a hurry to get through this chapter and finish writing it to get it in the post, I suppose. But that's a pretty powerful story there of Gideon. And it applies to us. And of Barak and Samson and Jephthah of David, one of the most notable of history, will be king over all Israel and committed every sin there is in the book. And yet God says he's a man after my own heart because he repented, he changed, he grew. Didn't matter. The sins that he had, they all get wiped away in the blood of Christ. And Samuel, all the prophets, <laughs> lumps them all together here. But he goes on in general to indicate what they did. Who through faith, that is, without any evidence had a hope, had a promise from God, had something they looked forward to that they truly believed with all their heart. And by faith, subdued kingdoms, as Gideon did, worked righteousness in spite of the Babylon or the Baal worship or the Ashtaroth or everything around them, they worked righteousness. Obtained promises. Some promises were fulfilled. Physical promises. 
stopped the mouths of lions. Didn't mention Daniel, but obviously a reference to him. How many of us who are about to be cast into a den of roaring lions could faithfully trust in God that his will would be done? God stopped their mouths and they didn't touch him. Quench the violence of fire. Well, there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego for one example. Escaped the edge of the sword. Some were preserved and weren't killed when they could have been. Like Enoch, but not like Abel. Out of weakness were made strong. What did I say earlier about God being the same yesterday, today, and forever? And now he calls the weak in the base? That these people he's speaking of, some of the greatest, if you will, stars of Christianity and worship of God throughout the history of mankind, were weak. says so right here. He, he's talking about the most prominent people that have ever lived. The people who have served God the most throughout history <coughs> were weak, but were made strong. We were weak. Are we being made strong? How are you made strong? Through trying through testing, through refining. He says he'll refine us as silver. He'll put us through the fire. That doesn't mean the tribulation. It doesn't mean uh, Gehenna fire necessarily. Now with some it will mean the tribulation, but through heat, through pressure. That's how he makes diamonds. That's how he makes gemstones. That's how you refine silver and gold is under heat and sometimes pressure. And he's putting some heat on us, brethren. We need to understand that's all from God and not worry about it. We've got to come through the heat made strong. You can take iron ore and turn it into steel, various alloys, but it is tempered by heat to make it harder, to make it stronger. If you can't stand the heat, you get out of the kitchen. If you learn to stand the heat, you'll be made stronger by it. That's what God did with these people. Out of weakness were made strong by all these things that came upon them. Waxed valiant in fight. Turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Just like it says in Micah 5 that seven, eight principal men will do in the end time when the Assyrian comes into our land. He's going to give the church, not just two, but others, the power to turn back the Assyrian army. And he's going to give two men the power over the whole world to give plagues whenever they wish. And that if anyone tries to hurt them, fire will come out of their mouths and devour them. He is going to give more power in the end time than he has ever given before to those who were weak and base and made strong through trial, testing, and tribulation.
through falling away, through avoiding false doctrine when brought to us, when not being dissuaded, when negativity is brought before us, through all the trials, troubles, and personal tribulations, sins and weaknesses that we may commit. Through those, we begin to learn to trust God and believe in Him that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. Women receive their dead, raised to life again. Literal resurrections by Elijah and Elisha. There is an end time type of Elijah. I suspect there will be a resurrection or two or three in the end time, just like there were in other ages. And others. Ooh, wait a minute here. We're not talking about just the victories here. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Understanding from God, even in a time when general salvation was not generally offered, some knew and were tortured. You know what torture is? We don't understand torture in American life. Torture hurts everything beyond our capacity to understand. And others had trial of cruel mockings, scourgings, whipped nearly to death or to death. Yes, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned to death, like Stephen even in the New Testament. They were sawed from one end to the other, as apparently Isaiah was, was done. To me, Isaiah is special. God gave him a capacity, as he says, to speak a word to the discouraged or the frustrated and to encourage them. And reading Isaiah is a very encouraging book. What a tender, loving, gentle, kind person Isaiah must have been. And yet God allowed him to be sawed, apparently, not just in half, but from stem to stern with a saw. I've cut myself a little bit with a saw a time or two, and it wasn't pleasant. I can't even imagine what Isaiah went through. And God allowed it. We're tempted, we're killed with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, didn't have proper clothes, they just killed an animal and wrapped a skin around them. Being destitute, that is poverty stricken, no food, no money. Afflicted and tormented, if you will. Job was tormented by everything that happened to him, among others. Of whom the world was not worthy. I hope we can be written in this story someday, brethren, as people to whom the world was not worthy. The weak in the base made strong. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, trying to find enough warmth and enough shelter from the elements to even live, shivering in the cold at night, trying to stay alive. The people of God. And these all, all the above mentioned, plus others that aren't mentioned,
having obtained a good report, as it said earlier, to God through faith, received not the promise. They received some promises, but not the promise of eternal life. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made immortal. Wow. All these notable people, these heroes of the Bible, God could have had a different plan and he could have changed them immediately when they qualified. But he didn't. He made them wait in the ground where they still are. Why? Just so they couldn't precede you and me. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David... All of them are waiting in the ground because of you and me. Think about that one and believe God. Because He wants you in His kingdom and He's making those people wait until we're ready.